You're listening to the N2K Space Network. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Today's show has a lot of big deals. Financial deals mainly, contract announcements from NOAA and NASA, as well as agreements from World Satellite Business Week in Paris. But we're starting the show with the biggest of big deals of them all. Maybe, a huge maybe, but still maybe. Webb has potentially found evidence of life on another planet. It does not get bigger than that. Today is September 12th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazas, and this is T Minus. The James Webb Space Telescope finds potential signs of life in the universe. Ball Aerospace awarded a NOAA GOXO sounder contract. Firefly Aerospace to provide radio frequency calibration services from lunar orbit for NASA. And our guest today is Sassy Duggleby, co-founder and CEO of Venus Aerospace on the future of hypersonic space travel. All this and more. Stay with us. Now on to today's intelligence briefing. While most of us are understandably really awed by the incredible pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope, astronomers were a lot more jazzed about Webb's spectroscopy capabilities. They don't make for splashy photos of nebulae. Instead, you get a data chart plotting molecules present in a planet's atmosphere. That sweet, sweet data is a bit harder for the general public to parse, admittedly, But the information they unveil about exoplanets is mind-blowing. And just barely a year after Webb's first images in spectrograph, researchers at the University of Cambridge have been studying a spectrograph taken by Webb's NERSPEC of exoplanet K218b, which is nine times the size of Earth and in its star's Goldilocks habitable zone about 120 light-years from us. That spectrograph shows the presence of methane and carbon dioxide in its atmosphere, 
with little ammonia present, and those are promising signs of a water ocean underneath its atmosphere. But more importantly, if not most importantly, and here's that giant maybe, it seems that Webb has also detected the molecule dimethyl sulfide, or DMS, in the atmosphere as well. And that molecule, when found on Earth, is only produced by life. Specifically, it's emitted by phytoplankton. So this is understandably a massive potential discovery here if the data can be validated. So Webb's going to take some closer looks at K218b with its MIRI instrument to see how much DMS is actually there, if any at all. Unlike Earth, this exoplanet is believed to be covered in an ocean and not rocky at all. So while the data seems to confirm the presence of some kind of ocean, keep in mind it could still be too hot to support life. And if DMS is present, it is going to take at least another year to confirm all of this. So hang tight, everybody. One of Webb's missions is to help us understand if there is life on other worlds. And it is truly stunning to think only a year into its work, we maybe, 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 maybe be closer to a real answer there. Just wow. And now, on to some NASA contract news, and we'll start with Ball Aerospace, who has been awarded a contract to deliver a sounder for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Geostationary Extended Observations Satellite Program, also known as GOXO. Although the contract amount was not released by Ball, it is reported to be worth over 480 million U.S. dollars. GOXO will collect data on weather patterns and ocean color, replacing and expanding on NOAA's current Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite R series. The ball-built GOXO sounder, known as GXS, will provide 3D profiles of the atmosphere over North America to enhance numerical weather prediction models. Once launched, GXS will be the first hyperspectral infrared sounder flown by the U.S. in geostationary orbit. Next up for Deals News, we have Firefly Aerospace, who has been awarded an $18 million NASA Commercial Lunar Payload Services contract to provide radio frequency calibration services from lunar orbit. The contract is part of Firefly's Blue Ghost Mission 2, which will be the company's second mission to the moon in 2026. This contract marks Firefly's third commercial lunar payload services task order, totaling nearly $230 million U.S. million to date. And some announcements out of World Satellite Business Week in Paris now. And Luxembourg-based satellite company Intelsat has signed a Memorandum of Understanding with U.S.-based Illyria. The MOU framework will see the use of Illyria's technologies to offer secure and ultra-fast ground space connectivity for government and commercial customers. When operational in 2024, Illyria will deliver massive data files in real time, as well as backup networks, which are running short of capacity or compromised. And Arianespace has also signed a contract with Intelsat to launch the IS-45 payload with Arian 6. IS-45 is expected to launch on the rocket no earlier than 2026. And Axiom Space today announced the crew for its Axiom Mission 3, or AX-3, to the International Space Station. This is the first all-European commercial astronaut mission to launch to the ISS, and it's expected to lift off no earlier than January 2024. 
astronauts from three countries, Italy, Turkey, and Sweden, through the European Space Agency, will unite for AX3, along with Axiom Space's chief astronaut and commander, Michael Lopez Alegria, representing both the U.S. and Spain as a dual citizen. Over at the DSEI conference in London, and Northrop Grumman UK has announced a partnership to advance Wales-based SpaceForge's in-space manufacturing capabilities. SpaceForge CEO Josh Western says this collaboration brings together the expertise and innovation of both the UK and U.S. space industries, and we believe it will be a game-changer in unlocking the tremendous potential of space-based manufacturing. By developing advanced semiconductor materials in the unique environment of space, we aim to revolutionize the global semiconductor market and support its rapid growth, ultimately driving new advancements in technology and the economy. All the best to them. U.S. President Joe Biden met with India's prime minister and the leaders at the India Space Research Organization late last week. During the meeting, the two leaders pledged to cooperate on several ambitious space projects. The two nations are also developing a strategic framework for human spaceflight cooperation by the end of this year. And capitalizing on this relationship is U.S.-based company Space VIP, which will be offering to broker spaceflight deals to India-based customers starting next month. And staying in Asia, TICOM has placed an order for a new software-defined satellite from Airbus based on the OneSat product line. TICOM's subsidiary, Space Tech Innovation Limited, signed a contract with Airbus Space Systems to design and manufacture its new satellite, as well as provide ground control segment components. The satellite will provide extended connectivity in the KU band over the Asia-Pacific region for TICOM's customers and partners. The financial terms of the agreement were not disclosed with the announcement, and the satellite is planned for delivery in 2027. That concludes our briefing for today. We have links to further reading on all of the stories we've mentioned in this episode in the selected reading section on our website. We've also included a piece on law firms following the private sector into the space race and an announcement on the new cohort for tech stars. All of this and more at space.n2k.com and just click on this episode. Hey, T-Minus crew, if you're just joining us, be sure to follow T-Minus Space Daily in your favorite podcast app. Also, please do us a favor, share the intel with your friends and coworkers. Here's a little challenge for you. By Friday, please show three friends or coworkers this podcast. A growing audience is the most important thing for us, and we would love your help as part of the T-Minus crew. If you find T-Minus useful, and we really hope you do, please share it so other professionals just like you can find the show. Thank you so much for your support. It means a lot to all of us here at T-Minus. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. 
Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Our guest today is Sassy Duggleby, co-founder and CEO of Venus Aerospace. To set the context for our discussion, Sassy first told me about the mission of Venus. So we're using a next-generation rocket engine. It's called a rotating detonation rocket engine that finally unlocks the hypersonic economy. So our ultimate goal at Venus is to build a passenger transport vehicle that would be capable of kind of one-hour global travel. So you could take off from San Francisco and land in Tokyo an hour later. Or, you know, we're in Houston, so take off from Houston, land in London in an hour. That's our long-term vision. The more near-term opportunities is using hypersonics for the Department of Defense, both kind of in testing and then ultimately kind of some hypersonic drones, hypersonic vehicles. Our large vision, our, you know, kind of big goal that we're chasing is kind of point-to-point hypersonic travel. So amped about the potential for point-to-point. I'll get to that in a second, but I would love to know about sort of the genesis of Venus. Like, what what was the cool discussion that brought this all about? Like, there got there has to be a cool origin story there. Yeah, absolutely. So prior to starting Venus, my husband and I, which we actually co-founded the company together. So he's the PhD rocket scientist, and I am an engineering undergrad and then an MBA. And he was a professor, for, a mechanical engineering professor for about a decade. We owned a company together, kind of built and scaled that, and then moved to Southern California to work for Virgin Orbit, um, where we were launching rockets off the wing of a 747. And then Andrew is also in the United States Navy Reserves. In the Navy capacity, he's called an engineering duty officer, and he does ship repair. And 2018 was a really bad year for the Navy, and they had more ships that they needed repaired than they could get back to the United States. So he actually got called up, and we deployed to Japan. And so we pulled our daughters out of school. We have two kids, pulled our kids out of school, moved to Japan. And it was actually living in Japan that we had the idea for Venus. It was a Sunday afternoon. We were sitting out kind of on our balcony overlooking Tokyo Bay, and talking about that it's 13 hours to get home and just how big the world really is. I mean, we had traveled internationally, but we had never lived overseas. And it was literally that Sunday afternoon, Andrew said, well, you know, there's this new rocket engine coming down the pipeline that he had been watching both as a professor and then at Virgin Orbit. And he said, I think if this rocket engine's ever proven, he said, we could put it on a plane and we could be home in an hour. And so that was the moment. I actually laughed at him <laughs> if I look back. Um But we started dreaming on what would it look like? Like, what if this engine really is proven? Could we commercialize it? Could we actually take that step? So fast forward, you know, it was proven at a university kind of at the academic level in 2019. And so we kind of incorporated the company. I started figuring out how do you raise venture capital? And then as soon as we got Virgin Orbit to the first launch, which was June 2020, um, we quit our jobs and it was the middle of covid And, um, you know, our kids were home from school and started fundraising and really digging in and saying, we think we have something here and we really need to go pursue this. Anyone who's done that long haul flight over the Pacific, I've done it many times, has dreamt of not having to sit there for 13, 14 hours going, oh, my gosh. Yeah, (laughs) boy, I would love to see that happen one day. So many companies are sort of trying to tackle hyperspace in some capacity. I would love to know how Venus is like, what's your differentiator? What are you guys doing in your approach? Yeah, so at the end of the day, it comes down to our rocket engine. So the detonation engine is just more efficient than a regular rocket engine. You know, the engines that, I mean, we sent Apollo to the moon with 50 years ago are pretty close to what we're using now for modern rocket technology. And so this is an entirely change in in rocketry. 
So anytime you detonate a propellant, you get more energy out of it than you would of a slower burn deflagration. And so because of the efficiency of the rocket engine, ultimately it means we don't have to carry as much fuel, which means we could suddenly have wings and landing gear and all the things that would finally make a rocket plane actually work. And so at the end of the day, it all comes down to this rocket engine that we're commercializing. So how and where do you test something like that? So you, you mentioned you're based out of Houston. Is that where you're also testing all this? Yeah. So when, you know, we were working in Southern California for Virgin Orbit and started looking at where, where in the country could we set up. One of the challenges out there is, you know, the headquarters was in Long Beach, but all the testing and operations was out in Mojave. And I was actually a single mom for almost two years because Andrew was head of launch operations and I was working at the headquarters. And so, you know, our company vision is home for dinner. We want to be able to fly you across the globe and have you home for dinner. And if you work for us, you know, as a husband-wife team, we actually want you home for dinner. So we started looking, where in the world can we set up where we could literally be home for dinner as a company? And um, the Houston spaceport, someone you know, brought it to our attention and we came out and talked with the team here. And so, yeah, we are in Houston um, at the Ellington Field, which is the Houston spaceport, and literally testing rocket engines outside of our hangar door which is incredible. It's, you know, it's the only urban spaceport in America. And so, you know, middle of, of city, or we're, we're south of downtown, but, you know, here in Houston, we're firing rocket engines on a regular basis um, right here. Sounds fantastic. The, the potential for point-to-point hyperspace travel, um, as you mentioned, like cutting down the, the pain of those incredibly long flights and bringing the world together. Aside from what you're building at Venus, what else do we need to get to that point? Do we need better infrastructure? Like what what would support this goal? Yeah, so the nice thing is because of the efficiency of our rocket engine, we could actually have jet engines for takeoff. So we can use, you know, standard airport infrastructure that allows us to take off with jet engines, get out over the ocean, and then and then do a boost with our rocket engine where you could fly higher and then ultimately cooler. So we don't have that Top Gun Maverick. So a lot of times you'll have material challenges. So you'll need, you know, an airframe that wouldn't melt or that could handle really high temperatures. But because we're a rocket, we can go higher and don't have that skin friction on our vehicle. You know, we will have to stand up with the fuel. Being a rocket, we carry our fuel and an oxidizer. And so at airports, not only would you have jet fuel to feel like right now we're also using hydrogen peroxide. So we would have to stand up an infrastructure at airports for hydrogen peroxide fueling. The nice thing is there's a military spec for high-test peroxide There's also integration into the airspace. So we've been working with the FAA on, you know, that's actually this last year, I've spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. because it's the FAA reauthorization. And so how do we integrate high-speed planes into the ecosystem? Right. Yes, we're far off in terms of when we actually will be flying, but we need to, we've actually asked the FAA to start looking at how, how do you integrate? How do we work with the airspace and that, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean that's that's sort of the the question that comes to my mind is how does that look? Do you have a sense of that yet, or is it still sort of in the, in the process? Yeah, so right now you know you you can't legally fly supersonic over land, right? With there's sonic booms, and so that's why our initial <laughs> why is that? yeah. yeah, our <laughs> yeah. initial flights all um, you know take you know will often say you know Pacific over the Pacific, so that it's over the ocean, you know. So there's going to be different challenges coming down the pipeline. One of the things that Venus has been looking at is we're actually repeating kind of what the space shuttle did, right? So the space mm. shuttle would come out of orbit and then it would slow down and it would just glide from Japan to the United States in 45 minutes. But when it flew overhead in, you know, Kansas, say, nobody in Kansas was looking up and seeing what was that. It wasn't till it got lower. And so 
one of our asks with the FAA reauthorization is, you know, give us an altitude at which you can fly at which you can't hear a sonic boom. And so, you know, that could actually unlock, you know, where you could take off over the Pacific and then get up high across the United States and cut back down um, on the Atlantic. You're at a fascinating point right now, um, and I I look forward to seeing how things develop. And uh, I'm curious, you have a fantastic long-term goal. What are you looking for in the next year or two? What What are you looking to achieve? Yeah, so we are working to integrate our rocket engine onto our drone. So we've been flying smaller scale drones, and then we've been, you know, testing our rocket engine regularly here at Spaceport Houston. And so really, it's kind of the integration of the two and get really fast flying drone going and and then it's kind of just scaling up. So the first the first area that we're looking at is kind of hypersonic testing, you know, the wind tunnel in the sky. So, you know, there's a long development path for, you know, for the Department of Defense looking at, you know, flying payloads um, for material sensors, that sort of thing. Um, and so really that's our first place that we're looking at. It allows us to build our drone, get flying fast, um, start earning some revenue as we scale towards larger vehicles. I have to ask because selfishly, uh, I, I'm sure every interview asks you this. When do you think <laughs> passenger point-to-point hypersonic travel is going to be an actual reality? Like, when can I board a plane from Boston to Tokyo and not have it take more than half a day? <laughs> so from the beginning, we've always said no sooner than 2030. And that assumes the right amount of capitalization, that we can pass through regulatory issues. Um, and so we know that it's still a long long journey for us, but we're continuing to just, you know, take those, buy down that risk one little piece at a time and get things flying and get things moving. And, and it's honestly, it's the adventure of a lifetime. We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, Visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E dot com. Welcome back. On this day, on September 12th, back in 1992, Dr. Mae Jameson and six other astronauts went into space on the Space Shuttle Endeavour for STS-47, the 50th space shuttle mission overall bringing a crewed Space Lab module to orbit. The team made 127 orbits around the Earth and returned to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida on September 20th, 1992. This voyage also made Dr. Jameson the first African-American woman in space. Now, every astronaut is pretty darn extraordinary, and Dr. Jameson is no exception. She started college at 16 years old at Stanford, graduated with a chemical engineering degree, and then went on to Cornell Medical School. She then served as a medical officer in the Peace Corps before opening her own private medical practice. She was inspired to apply to become a NASA astronaut after seeing Sally Ride's own flight in 1983. After her work on Endeavor, 
Dr. Jameson made a pop culture first by becoming the first real astronaut to appear on Star Trek, as you probably heard me mention a few days ago. And today, she's leading the very real effort to get humanity to emerge from our cradle here on Earth and journey into the cosmos as the principal of the 100-year Starship Project. That's it for T-Minus for September 12th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, from the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. This episode was produced by Alice Caruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karpf. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey, listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. Now.